I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no froth conversations exploring money and life. I know from my experience as a financial planner that we humans are often inhibited when it comes to talking about money. Many of us struggle to see that money is really just a means to an end and that the decisions we make around money can change not only our life, but the life of others as well. I'm going to be speaking with guests from a variety of backgrounds and asking them to share their personal story and the influence money has had along the way. I'm also going to be delving into some of those tricky money and life questions that I've seen my clients wrestle with over the years. My hope is that the shared experience of my guests will help you think maybe differently about money and ultimately make better money and life decisions. Hello and welcome to episode six of Money Expresso. So as we go live, we're just concluding the G7 in Cornwall, where the UK government's aim was to use our G7 presidency to unite leading democracies to help the world fight back from coronavirus, build back better and create a greener, more prosperous future. Let's hope that happened. Um, the Cornish G7 also gives me the perfect segue to a headline that caught my attention last week on the Radio 4 Today programme, that sales of clotted cream have apparently increased by a third over lockdown, a stat I can vouch for in my household where we've developed a weekly scone, jam and clotted cream habit. Say no more. Um, my guest today is Sarah Lord, the president of the Personal Finance Society. We have a far ranging conversation and in that include Sarah's passion for financial planning and its ability to improve the public's confidence around money, the money lessons she learned from her parents, how she educates her young children around the value of money and the yin and yang of money in married life. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. Let's get going. I'm delighted today to be joined by my guest, Sarah Lord. Now I first met Sarah a number of years ago when we were both chartered champions for the Personal Finance Society, or the PFS as we call it. The PFS is the professional body for the financial planning profession in the UK. Fast forward 13 years later, and today Sarah is the president of the PFS and also a board member. Sarah's passionate about financial planning and in particular the achievement of good client outcomes. Her desire is that more people have more confidence in their financial future that can only be better for the public at large. Sarah brings to her presidency her 20 years experience in the profession. Her most recent role was that of Chief Client Officer for Succession Wealth, where she was responsible for the client experience, proposition and brand, as well as chairing the investment committee. Prior to joining Succession, Sarah was a partner at Mazars, the accountancy practice where she headed up the financial planning um, at arm. And before that, she was a partner at Killick & Co, heading up the wealth planning operation in both the UK and the Middle East. When she's not working, Sarah enjoys spending time with her two young children and can be often found on her peloton, out cycling or playing tennis. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today on Money Expresso. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's absolute pleasure. Um, so, can we start with just um, you've you had quite a varied background over the last twenty or so years to to get to where you are today. Would you mind just talking us through some of the highlights along the way, so we we get a bit of a feel for your journey, please? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, the first thing to say is, um, uh, like many, I kind of fell into the prof profession um my degree is in medical biochemistry from Leeds so it's totally unrelated um and uh all I wanted to do when I left university was do a ski season so that's what I did and then I thought I'd better get a proper job um 
And so I started out with um, uh, independent financial advisor um, in administration. Didn't really know what it was about or anything. It was like my first proper job after, after the slopes. But I loved what I saw of what the financial advisors were doing and the conversations that they were having with their clients. So fairly quickly, I made a transition from uh, that IFA to working for um, Scottish Equitable, which is now Aegon. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that was a great experience um, and used it as an opportunity to really improve my knowledge and gain a number of qualifications. From there, I spent some time in the city um, leading um, the advisory team or the private client advisory team of an employee benefits business. Um, and at the point that that business was looking for a sale or was being sold, I made a move because I was asked by one of my clients um, who was chairman of a company as to whether I could um, join his business to establish um, the financial planning aspect um, because they were really very much focused on investment management. Um, I took that role, not knowing that six months later, my husband was going to get um, offered a tremendous opportunity to go and work in Dubai um, and the Middle East. Um, but... Um, giving it due consideration, bearing in mind this was at the height of the credit crisis too, oh um, I decided that I'd always fancied, or certainly over the years, I'd fancied setting up my own business. Um, so I decided to take the bold, brave, some may say stupid, um, <laughs> leap into setting up my own business um, and setting it up in the UK and regulated in the UK, mm -hmm. and then also looking at the opportunity in the Middle East. Um, and that's how I came to kind of um, partner and become part of Killick. Um, and we spent uh, essentially, um, I ended up joining Killick um, to do financial planning for their investment management clients. Um, and it was a great experience being in the Middle East. Um, not many people in our profession have that opportunity to work overseas. Um, but what it taught me was that actually wherever you are in the world individuals clients ourselves we all have very similar objectives mm -hmm. um, and goals um, whether that's financial security for the family or whether it's aspirations around home ownership whatever it may be and it's just the actual tools that you have at your disposal shall we say as far as kind of the solutions available um, that you use to create that financial plan, depending on where you are in the world. So I spent um, seven years in total at Killick, four of them based out in the Middle East, three of them back in London, um, but kind of doing a reverse commute back um, to the Middle East because I was still responsible for overseeing that. And then um, from Killick, I spent um, just over two years as a partner of Mazars based in the London office, which again, going back to my point about clients, it was a, again, a different client demographic, um, all with similar objectives and needs, but um, spent a lot of time working with family business owners and um, small private company owners where they're maybe looking to sell or management buyouts and really looking at 
the details for them as individuals rather than the bigger corporate perspective. Um, and from there, as you say, more recently, um, I was chief client officer for Succession Wealth, um, which as a large national um, financial planning business, my focus was very much on the client experience. So you've really worked across the whole gambit of financial planning for a small um, IFA, an insurance company, um, an investment management company. You've been in the Middle East. You've been a, a, a large um, consolidator who is growing a, a, um, financial planning businesses. What, what have been the, the main things that you've, you've observed and kind of has stoked your, your passion for financial planning on that, on that journey? I think... Throughout my journey, it's been very much about um, I am really passionate and I really enjoy helping clients achieve um, their objectives, which may sound quite simple, but actually um, empowering clients to have financial confidence because they they now understand their circumstances. They have a route map through their financial plan. Um, I, is something that I'm really passionate about because I believe everyone in society should have a degree of financial resilience and certainly should have confidence in their financial future. So, and I think, you know, as I've, as I've said, I think one of the biggest things is, as you point out, I've been in various organisations with different client demographics, um, but the needs, the concerns, importantly, the fears around running out of money or um, not having enough to support children in the way in which you do, mm. it's intrinsic, I think, in us in human, as human beings yeah. to have sort of a degree of innate fear around money yeah. um, and those conversations around money. Um, and that, I think, is really the power of what we do as financial planners with our clients. And that's what I'm really passionate about is really giving a great client experience. And, and, and then that totally makes sense. And it very much resonates with, with my experience over the years with dealing with clients from, from all different walks of life. And what, what was it that kind of drew you towards, um, I mean, as I mentioned in the introduction, you and I uh, were chartered champions when chartered financial planners first became, um, well, we first became chartered, I think in 2006, 2007 was when the chartered status was awarded. And you've pursued that with the Personal Finance Society, which is all um, voluntary. What, what, what's driven you to strive away at that Sarah to become the president because I, I think that's a remarkable achievement as well as working full-time and being a mum. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think yeah I think you've hit the nail on here because it is voluntary and it is representing our profession through our professional body and you know I can take it back to our days as chartered champions because obviously the the um, PFS introduced that role because the Chartered Financial Planner designation was a new designation and to raise the profile of kind of professionalism and also the designation and I've, I've gone on from there because I'm keen to give something back to our profession because ultimately by giving something back to our profession I feel like I'm giving something back to our clients um, you know collectively um, and so um, back in uh, 2015 there was um, I saw an advert from the PFS for the member director role 
Um, and I thought that's a real opportunity for me to give something back um, and really good experience as well mm. for me. Um, so I applied thinking, I'm not sure I'll necessarily get, you know, to the first stage, shall we say, but there's, you know, I don't know if I don't try. Um, and I was shortlisted, so I had to go and do a presentation. The thing was that that was three weeks after I'd had my son. So I wasn't necessarily in the best frame of mind or anything. <laughs> and, and unsurprisingly, I didn't get it. Um, <laughs> but then fortuitously, the following year, there was a retirement. And so they were looking again the following year so I reapplied and I guess that demonstrates I suppose my passion for helping mm. the profession and my yeah. commitment to our profession um, and so in 2016 unfortunately sun now a year and less of a distraction um, <laughs> going into that interview process um, I was successful so I've sat on the board for the last four and a half years um, and was elected president in September last year so um, yeah and it's it, it's the passion for what we do yeah um, yeah and really spreading that word isn't it because I, I think one of the frustrations that I see around money is and it's kind of one of the reasons for doing this podcast really is that it, money is such a taboo isn't it I think people rarely talk openly about money and so therefore, it's not surprising that people lack confidence around financial decisions. Um, and, I, and I kind of feel that there's also been the, the, a, a certain power basing from certain parts of the financial sector so that people don't feel particularly empowered about pay, taking money decisions. But what, what, what are your thoughts on the reasons for the taboo Sarah and and why people do struggle I think I think it's I think we're seeing a, a start of an evolution and I think it's a slow evolution where money becomes less of a taboo and people are more willing to talk about it and we have seen strides when in kind of the employment space certainly with you know initiatives like the gender pay gap and employees rights to understand kind of their remuneration mm. in the context of their peers so even just those steps are steps towards kind of breaking down some of those barriers but that's kind of in the um, workplace shall we say I think personally it's been it, it's been a generational thing um, and certainly, I think, you know, generations previously, it was potentially perceived to be rude to ask people how much they earned. Um, and, and, and therefore, it wasn't really discussed in the same way. And I think also um, people's awareness of the importance of a financial plan was far, far, far less. And that's something that as a profession, um, you know, we've evolved um, from, shall we say, um, pure transactional financial advice to empowering clients through their financial planning. And so I think that's helping with the taboo, but mm. I, I do think um, money is an incredibly personal thing anyway. People associate it with success um, or failure, um, depending on kind of um, someone's perspective. And actually my view is that, um, money obviously can help with aspects of life 
absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's important um, that people have sufficient to be able to live a life. Um, and, you know, there is poverty around the world, but at the same time being, I suppose, breaking down that fear of being judged mm -hmm. of, you know, whether you're successful because you, you know, you've managed to save into an ISA or how much you put into your pension um, or how much you're earning. Actually, it doesn't really matter. In my view, it shouldn't matter to anyone else. Mm -hmm. It's no one else's business. Mm -hmm. It's an individual um, perspective, but we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not a matter of judging, isn't it? Is it whether, you know, somebody's got it right or wrong? It is, it is just what, what it what it is and why that and I, and I think that's very often the thing is it when you hear about the the news and you um you hear about people uh I don't know buying Tesla stocks or something at the present moment in time and maybe trying to make a quick return on it the thing is everybody's own circumstances are different and so it may be absolutely right for some people to do that but for the majority of people it doesn't fit in with a life plan to actually build assets upon which you will ultimately live off when you when you stop working and and I think the messages can get quite confusing can't they yeah and I think that's one of the key aspects and I think that's kind of the power of financial planning and what we do in our profession as well because you know one of the things that I learned very early in my career um, is that it is not our role as financial planners to judge our clients and you know we need to leave judgment at the door um, when we when we meet with our clients because that enables the rich conversations and we might have our views um, on whether a client has done a crazy thing or not um, and we can express a view to a client as to what we believe um, it, it may be but we should never judge our clients yeah. for money decisions that they have made in the past or are looking to make um, it goes back to my point that our role is to enable and empower financial confidence rather than to judge. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think sometimes just talking through with people about advantages and disadvantages of particular courses of action. So they end up with a balanced view rather than something they might have just heard in the media. But, uh... Yeah. And I think I think that is also a really important point that I'm fairly passionate about, too. And kind of to your point around the media. There is so much jargon out there when it yeah. comes to finances and financial services and kind of um, solutions and products and pensions and ISAs and, you know, how, how many different types of ISA have we mm. got these mm. days? Legislation as well has complicated the financial landscape um, and actually by sitting with clients and talking in plain English, you know, without the jargon, and outlying advantages, disadvantages, as you say, it, it helps put them in an informed position yeah. to make decisions um, around their kind of roadmap or, or financial plan. Definitely, definitely. Now, so I'm really keen to dig a little bit into into you actually and, and your personal journey. You've had a fascinating and very successful career. Um, and I'm really intrigued by the place that money had in your home when you were a, a, a child. Do you recall your first memories around money when you were a little girl? 
I think my earliest memory around money, um, there's two aspects to it, I think. Um, I suppose it's the tangible and the intangible, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, and so the tangible for me was um, Friday night sweet money. And so being given 50p, um, and I've got two younger brothers and, um, you know, if we've been good during the week and that, and, and um, my father is dentist and my mother a pharmacist. So kind of a medical family. Yeah. So um, sweet things, particularly um, from the dentist um, side of my family um, were few and far between. So it's a real treat um, to go and get sweets. Um, but you only got 50p so it was then a choice of how you spent that 50p <laughs> as to kind of what value you felt that you were getting and it was always interesting as to kind of the choices that mm. my brothers and I would make depending on kind of how we're feeling you know if we wanted a lot then we would definitely go for a quarter of midget gems but if <laughs> we wanted you know um something a bit more luxurious then we'd maybe go for some um eclairs or toffees or something but not get <laughs> as many um so so there's that aspect which I remember from being you know really quite young um and then the other aspect is and again I think show my age slightly here is um didn't have a bank account but had a building society account so had a traditional um passbook yeah so with you know birthday money five pounds or whatever I would have great pride in going down to the local village um and the building um society um sort of office because it was part of a, an office and sort of passing over my passbook and passing over my money and watching mm -hmm. them write the number and I always like to see that it I it was always increasing as it were and it yeah. always seemed to be much easier maybe this was my parents influence it always seemed to be much easier for me to pay money in than actually take any of the <laughs> money out um and I, I still remember that as well so uh, yeah. so the power of compounding interest from a very young age yeah seemingly <laughs> and do you if you had to categorize yourself would you call yourself a spender or a saver um I think I'm probably broadly somewhere in between the two. Yeah. Um, so um, I've definitely always had an element of saving within me. Mm. Um, and it forms part of kind of my financial budget or whatever. Um, but at the same time, I do have a view of, well, kind of live for, for today so yeah. I'm trying to get that right balance between kind of living for today and having wonderful family experiences holidays and enjoyment but at the same time making sure that you know we are saving for the short the medium and the long term yeah. so um yeah somewhere between the two yeah it's a good place to sit isn't it and did your mum and dad talk to you about money was that was it an open conversation or did you just kind of somehow develop the the savings habit with the building society etc I think um what I remember from my childhood and kind of around money is that I was very fortunate as were my two brothers that my parents invested in us. By that, I mean, I was fortunate to have a private education as were my brothers, but actually what that meant was there wasn't much left over for mm -hmm. us as kind of a family. And, 
Now, I still have conversations with my parents today around the fact that I'm forever grateful in the investment that they made in me and provided me with opportunity. Um, but it did mean that my father in particular was quite frugal um, mm -hmm. and definitely watched the pennies. And so I think that 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 kind of money belief, because, you know, I do think people there is an element of, you know, the whole debate over nurture and nature. And I do think there is an element of that in people's beliefs and behaviours around money. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm grateful to a certain extent that, you know, my parents weren't frivolous yeah. um, because I do believe that it, it, it could have run through to me. Because if I look across my brothers as well, both of them successful in their own rights and both very similar to me mm. in sort of, shall we say, their approach yeah. to money but there was never really a dialogue or a conversation and uh, right you know this afternoon we're going to talk to you about money type thing no. but it, it, it kind of was it, it wasn't hidden but it wasn't openly discussed so we're kind of more of osmosis and, and modeling yeah. behaviors that you saw and and actually I mean it's a tremendous commitment I think um for for parents, unless you're, you know, super wealthy to put your children through private education. And if you're able to do that, it, it, is, a, it is a wonderful foundation and gift. Now, now I, I understand you've got two young children. Um, you mentioned your son and I think your daughter's slightly older. How do you try and um, model or talk to your children about money? There seems to be so much more distraction these days than there might have been when you were a, were, were a child, and I'm sure that must influence children. But how does that show up in your relationship with your with your kids? Yeah, and I think, you know, Lottie's, Lottie's eight, Harry's five. Um, and so I think Lottie's developing a maturity of understanding of belongings, shall we say, mm. um, and, and, and therefore actually belongings cost something yes. um you know whether it's toys or um she's very much into her art and craft so you know um tools and utensils to do that um and so i use that as opportunities to talk to children around kind of the value of money and the cost of things but i think one of the key differences for kind of um parents like myself with children at sort of a young age and you know even teenagers is that <clears throat> compared to when I was growing up money has become far less tangible we don't use cash in the same way um, and you know we're moving much more and certainly the pandemic has driven this further as well um, around to a cashless society mm. and you know that's a whole nother debate as to whether we agree or not Sure. to a cashless society but actually with children I think it makes it harder because they don't see money in the same way there isn't that same exchange of value when you know going to a shop or an ice cream if you're if you're paying just tapping mm. with something then you are actually physically handing over the money because I mean one of the things that I used to do early in my career and it was kind of a tip that I got given um early on was actually I took money out of the cash machine on a weekly basis and that's what I had to spend and yeah. I, could, I suppose keep track of my spending and I do think it's harder for children to get that same comprehension when money isn't real in the same way and 
to try and help with that because it's only going in that direction mm. you know we're not yeah. going to suddenly not go back backwards to, is it no. <laughs> to more cash um so to try and help Lottie with some of this um I set up a GoHenry account there's other accounts you know similar but that's very spe specifically designed for young children um they get a card so uh -huh. you know can tap like mummy and daddy can um but there's an app that goes with it and so Lottie's um weekly pocket money which really is not that much goes across from my account and and mm -hmm. shows up in her account on a weekly basis and and within there there's education calls as well around kind of that are very relatable for children so I do think there's some tools out there that can help but I do I do believe that there is a degree of parental responsibility on financial education mm. um, but there's a responsibility on us as financial planners to educate our clients who are ultimately the parents of mm. those children mm. so you know it is slightly um circular shall we say it is isn't it and and it it sounds like what you're doing is instilling again as your parents did in you some good habits into your children and I love the idea of the Go Henry card and, and app and, and I'm I'm sure that's really helpful for, for children one, one of the things that I I'm always puzzled about is the the fact that kind of good money habits management call it what you will seems to be pretty low on the school curriculum priorities is that correct yeah I mean there's a time there's a tiny bit within the as I understand it in the curriculum mm. but it's kind of under the maths if that makes sense rather mm. than um being part of um you know it, its own I suppose subject matter yeah um and I do think that you know as much as I say there is a parental responsibility I do think there is also a society responsibility yeah. um for children to to, money is a life skill it's something that you need to understand mm. um, and if you don't understand it very early on in kind of your early adulthood you can get into sort of serious problems through mm. no fault of your own if mm. and so I do believe that there needs to be more done as part of kind of the curriculum um, but I think the important thing of all of that as well and like how they you know, go Henry app and things is making it fun yeah um and you know I try and do that with the children for example if we're out shopping and doing maths around the cost of this and you know if mummy's mummy's only got five pounds and this costs five pounds twenty can mummy afford to buy it and yeah. and and you know actually well only it, it it's on offer so it's four pound fifty so can mummy afford to buy it so there are ways in which we can do it but mm. definitely Money is a life skill yeah. that everyone needs to have. Um, and so it'd be great to see more done as, around the curriculum. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, and I think, as you say, we as financial planners can go some way to trying to help with that with that education. And I believe the, the Personal Finance Society um, does reach out to schools, doesn't it, I think, to, to try to assist with, um, you know, uh, educating children around money and, and using it for good. So, um, I know I think it's, uh, it's very important. I'd like to see it much higher up uh, the, the curriculum than it, than it seems to be at the moment. Um, 
one of the things that kind of really interests me around money is how we as human beings are around the way we spend. So I observe in myself and in others that there are certain things that money is no object. You, you want it either physically or the experience and cost is very low down the considerations. Whereas on the other end of the, of the scale, there are things that we begrudge spending money on, um, even if they're necessities. Did, what, where, where do you fall with those? What, what are your two kind of things that you'll spend without, without thinking on begrudge at the other end? I think um, there's probably a couple of things that I spend without um, concern or without thinking. Yeah. And particularly around children, children and um, making sure that they have what they need. And by that, I don't mean a playroom full of toys. Mm. I mean, um, you know, being comfortable in school shoes, for example, rather than just getting by because the feet have grown. And, you know, the, 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 all those aspects can be quite expensive, yeah. but I just don't think twice about it. And also um, opportunities for my children. So um, think about, for example, um, love, they love being outdoors. So tennis camps or um, rugby tots or, mm. you know, all of that. I just, I just don't think about um, how much it might be per hour or anything like mm. that. There's no analysis done. If they enjoy it and they're getting good exercise and they're socializing, then just don't think about it. Whereas on the other hand, um, <laughs> My weekly food shop from the <laughs> equally as important, some would say. <laughs> equally important. Um, it's something that I actually annoy myself that I'm kind of like looking at the prices and and, and analysing how much spending and do we really need that and things. And I think this is this is just crazy. This is food, this is substance. It's not like we're being extravagant or anything. <laughs> um uh, and 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 uh, kind of drive my husband slightly crazy with it because there's things like that that mm. I will be you know watching literally watching the pennies um but there'll be other aspects and it's like I don't understand you yeah. just paid that for um you know children or their activities yeah. um yeah yeah watching the pennies on the the Ocado shop I wonder where that comes from that's interesting isn't it um around uh around money uh, around food that that that's essential and um... but you see the thing is if I go to for example if I go to Sainsbury's or I go to the local farm shop no think about it it's okay. really bizarre really bizarre um I think it's more the 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 I don't have the time if I'm in a supermarket to be mentally tossing oh, so it it's all out online it's that you so if I'm doing it online okay, and yeah. I, I I can physically see it <laughs> yeah and I know what I'm going to be checking out, shall we yes. say. Yeah. Whereas if I go to the farm shop, I can't mm. add it up. Just put it in the basket and I get mm. to the till. And then it's like, well, that's what it is. Because I can't say to the, the, the cashier, no, actually. <laughs> that's rather not. Yeah. And I, well, yes, I suspect that's something to do with the physicality of actually seeing it and, and maybe desiring it rather than something that's just kind of, you know, yeah. two dimensional on a, on a screen or something. That's, yeah. I mean, that is very interesting. I was a guest I had on recently was talking about the psychology of purchases in supermarkets and coming at it in a slightly different way. But uh, yeah, that um, 
I must admit, I'm not an online shopper, but uh, I mean, at the moment in COVID, a trip to Waitrose is about as exciting as it gets, isn't it? But, you know. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned your husband. And, and one of the things that, again, I've observed is how very often in relationships there, there are roles played where one person deals with the money, the other person takes very little interest. Historically and stereotypically, that's been the man um rightly or wrongly how does that play out with you and your husband if you don't mind me asking such a personal question no that's absolutely fine we're the complete opposite to the um stereotypical yeah. and I think obviously some of that is some of that is the financial planner in me and the mm. fact that I suppose I understand it um and my my husband and I have a different relationship with money or kind of how we perceive um, money my husband is far more flippant mm -hmm. um you know he, he he saves and everything but he he is I suppose far more flippant and I could tell you probably down to the penny the amount of money that we have in our bank accounts yeah whereas he would not have a clue <laughs> and actually the other the other week I said oh if you notice that I've moved the money he went oh, I don't look at the bank accounts <laughs> so I moved that money from that account because we've got a joint account that we run kind of everything for. Yeah. I moved that money to that account. He was like, oh, I don't look at them. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, um, it, 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 it's like a yin and a yang. Yeah, well, it, it sounds perfect, really, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds perfect. And he obviously entirely trusts the decisions that you're making. And at least he's not expending energy on the same task as well, which I think is good. Yeah, and it's interesting, though, because, you know, I... Many a time have I had a conversation with, say, shall I say, a male client if the um, if the wife hasn't been able to be present or, or whatever, and um, the male client saying, or indeed if the wife is present, because mm. uh, I much prefer to have meet, you know, where there's a couple to yeah. have um, a joint meeting um, with both partners. And but many a time I've had a conversation with the male where they've been like, well, my wife wouldn't have a clue where to start if I wasn't here. Mm. And I'm like, that's why we need to have this sort of joined yeah. up conversation yeah. around money. Um, but I actually think my husband would be the same. I'm not sure he would never mm. start. Mm. Yeah. Um, where, where, you know, where whatever what everything is and what everything means. Yeah. Um, and um, so it is quite interesting. And we do see it a lot, though, don't we, with, with clients, don't we? And, and as you say, you know, stereotypically, it is the, 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 the husband that's dealt with the financial affairs and the wife lives in fear of being left to have to sort it all out themselves and uh yeah it it yeah and i kind of like to think that that's something that's changing but but maybe not some people are just just approach money in a different way or are more fearful i think aren't they yeah. now, i'm conscious of time sarah and i love to ask this question so i'm gonna ask you what's been your best buy for around about 30 pound in the last 12 months that's brought you the most pleasure oh Pleasure or practicality, that's the thing. Oh, um, because <laughs> oh that's a good question. Um, yeah, well, whichever, whichever. Because I think there's been a couple of things, maybe less than £30 that I've bought that maybe haven't given me much pleasure, but have, given, have been hugely <laughs> practical in kind of lockdown, all this yeah. virtual working world and stuff. Um, but I think 
from a pleasure perspective, it might have been a bit more than £30, but last um, sort of late spring, summer, was the paddling pool for the children. Um, Because obviously we all know we have such wonderful weather in 2020. It was such a terrible year for everybody in so many different ways. Um, But the weather was good. Um, And, you know, we're fortunate enough to have outdoor space and garden. Um, And so just to hear the squeals and the enjoyment of the children, um, you know, at that time, the four and seven, none of us, as humans are designed to have experienced what we have over mm. the last 12 months. But I, particularly for young children, mm. I think, you know, I think it was incredibly hard. Um, so to hear their squeals of delight and enjoyment, <laughs> and yeah. particularly when they flick water at me and stuff was just, um, it was it was a real pleasure to yeah. see them having that degree, you know, that, I suppose that freedom really in what was actually, we didn't have the same degree of freedom mm. through the year. The, so. that, that's right. It's that simplicity and freedom and just sheer joy, isn't it? Children mm. playing in a paddling pool. I love that. That's a, that's a, that's a lovely one. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not go with practical. I like the idea of pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm conscious of time, Sarah, and um, I I really always like to try and finish a podcast with asking my guests to maybe share a money pearl of wisdom or two what what would those things be that you would like to leave our listeners with that that they can perhaps kind of learn from or would help them in their money management uh I think for me and it's something that I've said to kind of every client I have worked with from you know my first client is the importance of a budget for me that is kind of a pearl of wisdom and I think it is the foundation for any financial plan Mm -hmm. so if listeners do anything for after this is and if they don't have a budget um in place is to spend you know a little bit of time and it doesn't have to be arduous but just having a grasp on kind of income most people know that because it's on your pay slip or you know um various um means but actually just taking that time to understand where your money is going there's some great tools in most from but most banks these days where you can download your transactions and things but just actually spend that time i did it probably it was before kind of the first lockdown Mm. um uh I, i just sort of updated the budget and I was amazed at how much this was when my husband and I were traveling into London every mm. day. Um, I was amazed at how much we were spending on coffees. Um, <laughs> yeah, and and like, you, don't, you don't think about it, no. but actually having a budget is the first start to that financial plan and can empower those decisions that you mm. make around your money. But importantly, as part of the budget, I think, where possible you should always be including a degree of saving as part of your expenditure yeah um and just make it it becomes habit that way yes and so you're always planning for the future and putting something aside for your future rather than it it potentially being perceived as a chore that you have to save because it's not part of the budget so yeah I think that's that's the thing that I'm um passionate about is, I, I, I you know, really like budget. that it's such a great foundation isn't it and a, a client once said to me oh god Ruth budget 
it sounds like I'm going to have to make do or cut back. And I said, no, not, not at all. It's, it's really just so you can notice where you're spending your money. And if you don't like the word budget, just call it spending plan or something, isn't it? Yeah. I think that word yeah. budget feels a little bit like diet to some people, doesn't it? Yeah, and it feels a bit arduous. Yeah, like yeah. Bit, like you're being critical of yourself yes. and it's not meant it's like not, that. It's not, no. It's like it's spending. And actually most clients that I've worked with that have done that have been surprised that, oh, I didn't realise I was spending that much, like for me, for example, on coffees. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but others have been pleasantly surprised that actually they don't spend as much as they thought they spent so there is more disposable income for them to enjoy some of the things that maybe they've been putting off and and I I like the idea of you actually including your savings or investment as part of your budget not that thing that you kind of try and shoehorn in at the end of the month if there's anything left I think that's a really really good discipline um Fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. That You've been fantastic. Thank you so much for telling us about your journey, your passion to financial planning, how money was when you were grown up, how you are with your children, the, the pleasures and your final pearls of wisdom. Thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you. Oh, and I will just say for our listeners that this is the second time Sarah and I have had this conversation <laughs> because rookie podcast error Ruth Sturkey forgot to push record first time round. So Sarah, a double thank you for doing this again. I really do appreciate it. (laughs) That's all right. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) Bye. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah today as much as I did. I, for one, love the image of the fun her family have had in that paddling pool. You may also have heard me mention Tesla stock during the podcast. Of course, that is no recommendation at all to buy. Before I leave you today, I just wanted to mention our next podcast on the 28th of June with an incredibly inspiring young man, William Adwesi. William is a British Ghanaian entrepreneur, TEDx speaker, philanthropist, role model and fashion designer who is the founder and CEO of Vite London, a company who's using its profits to help educate children in sub-Saharan Africa. Be sure not to miss his wisdom and inspiration that is packed into that episode. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast to subscribe, rate, and give a five-star review for Money Expresso. Apparently, this helps more people to find the podcast so we can help more people think differently about their money and their life. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of the matters discussed, or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is to merely share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.